When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. Welcome to Season 2. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name's Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the I newspaper and the author of How to Be a Liberal. Today, we are taking up arms and wading into the phrase culture war, which has become the go-to term for pretty much any political disagreement that isn't about economics. But as we will discuss, that's not really what it means. And most people don't know what it means. There was a Times radio poll in 2021 which asked, when politicians talk about a culture war, what do you think they mean? 76% said they didn't know, while another 15% guessed wrong. Only 7% chose the offered definitions of rival ideologies or conflicting notions of national identity. So we turn, as usual, to the OED, culture war noun after the German Kulturkampf. A, a political struggle for control of cultural and educational institutions, but that is apparently rare. B, a conflict between groups with different ideals, beliefs, philosophies, etc. Now, especially in the United States, an ideological struggle for political and cultural dominance between conservatives and liberals. The first modern citation is a little earlier than I expected. It's from Todd Gitlin, the former 60s activist, in the New York Times in November 1987. The traditionalist side of the culture war wants our authorities either squeaky clean or impeccably discreet. Ian, is that a good enough definition or trio of definitions there? I quite like that. And I came across a nice line from the sociologist Philip Reef. This is where there is culture, there is struggle. It is the form of fighting before the fighting begins. And I think one of the things I want to talk about is the problem becomes when it is totalizing and obliterating. And of course, of course, one is going to argue about culture. I mean, we are argumentative species. Inevitably, there's going to be these tensions. And what a culture war is, and this is part, I think, going to be one of the themes of the discussion, is what is the difference between a culture battle and a culture war? Mm -hmm. So, like the OED says, it all starts with Kulturkampf in Germany in the 1870s. Tell us what that meant in that context. It's essentially a battle between Bismarck, the Chancellor, the National Liberals, and you could use small L liberals as well, versus the Catholic Church. But behind all of that, really what's happening is a struggle for what it means to be German. Hmm. This is 1871. It's the creation of Germany. It's called the German Empire at that point. Essentially the unification of Germany. But he is a very impressive statesman. He's presented with a situation, which is he has to invent a German identity, really. Yeah. It's very diverse, lots of different sort of social status, lots of different traditions, different histories that you're trying to bring together. And and his only idea of how to do it is to do it in opposition to something. And the options are twofold. You can do it externally through war, through blood and iron, which eventually is what (laughs) sort of ends up happening. Or, as in Bismarck tried to do, you can do it internally by finding enemies that you can differentiate yourself from, internal enemies. And the most obvious group to go for are the Catholics. At this point, they're about a third of the population. 
A new party has sprung up in 1870 called the Centre Party. This party would go all the way through until it's basically eventually dismantled by Hitler. Centrism. Centrism, yeah. But not as you know it or or as anyone else would. And it's potentially quite a threat to him. I mean, at this point, it's getting about 18% of, of the vote. But Catholics are a third of the country. So, you know, if it manages to basically colonize that social milieu, it is going to be the biggest party, you know, sitting in the Reichstag. So that kind of game of realpolitik, this is the period where the phrase realpolitik is invented, is, is is on the boil. However, there's something else going on, which is a genuine philosophical battle. And I think that philosophical battle is one that starts at the Enlightenment, so about 100, 150 years before this period, and is still going on today. Right. Which is really the Catholic rhetoric at this point throughout Europe is conservative with a small c. It is about a retreat back from the enlightenment principles of individual reason and sort of questioning of power and progress. So you get in 1864, we've got Pope Pius IX, who who issues the Syllabus of Errors, which, by the way, I think we should have called this podcast, if only we'd known, (laughs) which denounces liberalism, nationalism, and the separation of church and state. He also sort of lashes out at everything that liberalism stands for, free speech and all of that. The First Vatican Council in 1869 to 70, the Pope issues the Dogma of Papal Infallibility, which also, I think, is how you should headline your emails. And he basically says, look, it's classical sort of absolute monarchy. It's like, I am God's representative on earth. I cannot be questioned. I am right on all all things, on all matters, by definition, at all times, and must be obeyed. Like, like Dominic Cummings. <laughs> Much like Dominic Cummings, yeah, yeah, with his very long emails. So it's essentially a statement of war with liberalism. And Bismarck, classic sort of reactionary, and the liberals sort of find themselves, well, actually, we, we have a common enemy here, yeah. and we should go for it. And the way they do it is they do an attack, as you would expect, predominantly on education on trying to get rid of sort of church control over education, mm. the syllabuses, extracting them from the education system. This culture camp dominates everything. Right. Like it dominates from the highest level of politics to the lowest parish. It's in sports. It's inside of neighborhoods. It's inside of schools. It's absolutely everywhere. It absolutely sort of electrifies political debate at that point. And something terribly interesting happens, which is far from killing the center party, he puts it on rocket boosters. I mean, by the end of this period, I mean, so it was getting 18% in 1871. In 1877, the Centre Party is getting 25% of the vote. Now, bearing in mind that 33% of the country is Catholic, that's basically, you're essentially getting to the point where almost every Catholic in the country is is voting for this party. Its vote is is also of an extremely high quality. The voters just simply will not leave the party. Unlike other parties, they struggle to maintain loyalty. The Centre Party does not. They're they're properly loyal. As it goes off, this, this quote is from Christopher Clark a historian of the period. Um, And he's talking about this long period into the 1890s as the laws are slowly dismantled, but it's still powerfully effective at mobilizing voters. He says the long half-life of the anti-Catholic laws ensured that there was always sufficient combustible material available for politicians and journalists who were inclined to protest or support specific discriminatory measures. So you get mass organizations like the Protestant League are formed, in their case, they say, to break down the power of Rome on German soil. They go from 100,000 members to half a million by 1914. The People's Association for Catholic Germany goes up to 800,000 members. So you've got this whole bubbling kind of industrialized division that grows up around issues that are ultimately about, do you get to have your own judgment or does the church get to do it? And those sort of enlightenment ideas. Final point on it before we move off from it is... The demographics are 
fucking fascinating because they break down almost exactly the same way as you see them break down in the US in the 80s or in, in the UK sort of in the, you know, after 2016 over Brexit. So it breaks down geographically. You've got Protestants in the north, the northeast and, and the center. You've got Catholics on the sort of Polish eastern periphery, the west and the southwest. And even where they're mixed up in the Rhineland or, or in Alsace, they're demographically split. So Catholics are on average poorer than Protestants. They're less likely to complete secondary school, right, much right. less likely to attend university, less likely to work in, in a profession. If they do have arable land, it tends to be less fertile, a bit smaller than the others. You could almost map the demographic, I mean, obviously for the historic changes, but you could almost map it to what we then find sort of, a, you know, 100, 150 years later. This is good because a lot of the time the culture cap is seen as like almost a, a sort of an etymological coincidence that it's such a different thing that it's so it's like a century distant from from our culture wars. Mm -hmm. But like you said, there's actually a lot of overlap. The content and the demographics are very yeah. similar. That's actually quite a lot of echoes. I went into it thinking the same way. This is a fundamentally kind of semantic coincidence, really. It isn't. There's quite a bit of substance in the similarities. So let us leap forward to the modern use of the phrase, which really begins. And with all these phrases, like they're floating about, but there's always a point where it takes off. Mm -hmm. It really begins with a very sober, responsible 1991 book by the sociologist James Davison Hunter called Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. So again, echoes of Bismarck trying to define Germany. Mm -hmm. The New York Times called it admirably concise and marvelously fair. Admirably concise. And marvelously I've, 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 I've had books that have been described that way in quotes and everyone mocked me for it because it just made it sound like at least you got it over and done no, with I know. quickly. <laughs> I know, no, it does sound like faint praise. <laughs> so Hunter, who is an expert in religion, says in the book, there's always been a clash between religious and secular forces in America. One famous example is the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, mm. dramatized in the movie uh, Inherit the Wind, when high school teacher John T. Scopes was accused of violating a Tennessee law against teaching the theory of evolution. Now, we would still recognize this now as a culture war issue. It brings together religion and education, which mm -hmm. is a very potent combination. But in 1991, Hunter is still able to write the very thought or possibility of a deeply rooted and historically pivotal cultural conflict in America strains our imagination. <laughs> so not so much these days. Now, Hunter argues that, that something new began happening in the 1970s with conservative backlash politics, the backlash against the kind of really quite rapid liberal reforms and movements of the 1960s. Mm. So in this period, you have the growth of anti-abortion politics after Roe v. Wade in 1973, Anita Bryant's crusade against gay rights in 1977, formation of Jerry Falwell's moral majority in 1979, which I think we now use as just a general phrase, a boom in evangelical Christianity, the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment, the radicalization of the National Rifle Association, mm. which used to just be kind of, you know, almost like a club for people that liked hunting. <laughs> and so it's a multi-front backlash against the 60s, uh, which then feeds into the success of Ronald Reagan. And interesting, John Ronson's podcast series, Things Fall Apart, starts in the 1970s, that it's about the culture wars, with the rise of the anti-abortion movement in one episode, and something I think you want to talk about, the West Virginia school textbook controversy of 1974, which it feels like perhaps the the first and actually a very extreme case of the modern culture war. Well, I think to be honest, I think that the start of all this—it's it's weird, but it kind of goes back to our nineteen 
1950s period that you and I have now sort of established in these podcasts that the 1950s was a time of paranoia and fear and a, a deep sense of national decline, right? And then you get to the 1970s and the 1950s don't look that way at all, right? So you have the, you have a film like Greece, mm. right? Which is obviously, you know, portraying the 50s as this sort of halcyon time. American graffiti. Of, you know, American graffiti. Or, you know, more than anything else, Happy Days. You know, so it's just a classic. It's, it's almost like it forms in the American mind that it's this perfect sort of tinged in sepia sort of time. Yeah. And even, I mean, I was watching Armageddon the other day because I have no sense of judgment or taste. And it's the same, like even in, in the 90s, you know, all of those scenes back at home when they're off look like they're from the 1950s. The diner, you know, the mm. open top car, the burger, all of that kind of stuff. And then I would say, for instance, you know, even into the present day, when you see someone with a MAGA hat, you know, make America great again. The again is 1950s. Despite the feeling at the time that they were, you know, sort of decline and paranoia and being besieged. Right. Yeah. Well, that, again, that's just so fascinating to me that when you go into it, it's like, no, they weren't having that great a time in the 1950s. So what is it that happened in between that creates that? And the answer to that is the 1960s, mm. right? You know, it's it's hippies, it's, it's drugs, it's changed ideas around sex, around gender. But all of that is a challenge to the status quo, whichever way you cut it, really. Um, and terrifies people at the time. And there's no point sort of understating how much it terrifies people. And in the 70s, as the 70s goes on, you have this, the decline of blue collar factory work, right? And this is a theme that I think comes up again and again, which is the decline of status. To look at your own sense of status, you're often going to find yourself talking about yourself in an individual sense. What's your job? You know, what's this? What's your house or that? When that's removed from you, when that kind of sense of industry is sort of declining away, and actually you could go and people aren't impressed to say that you're a plumber or whatever, even though your money might still be okay or something like that, then actually there's more of a temptation. There's a lot of academic literature on this to start trying to find pride in your group. Mm. Right? So you revert back to what about your race? What about your gender? What about your religion? What about your nation? So all of this plays in that sense of threat from the 60s and then all those pulverizing impacts from the neoliberal experiment sort of, you know, through the 70s and of course inflation goes on into the 80s. And you see that play into two groups really who, who benefit. The first, as you say, is the evangelicals who, uh, there's a long history of evangelical sort of culture in, in the US. Oh yeah. And, of, and sort of politicized religion. But previously, interestingly, it's more um, critical of capitalism. So if you go back a few decades in the US, it's actually quite suspicious of the free market as this destructive force. At this point, it becomes very, very comfortable with capitalism indeed. And you see the same as, as well from the neoconservative sort of intellectual movement, which is much more secular. It's predominantly sort of Jewish people in New York, the former liberals, former members of the new left in the 60s, um, but just become gradually more and more isolated with the movement and start to lash out. And that and those kind of sidings, I mean, really that cements in place in the 70s and the 80s. But those groups who shouldn't necessarily work that well together uh, are the ones who sort of launch the backlash. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, is a real feature of culture war, which you see very early on, is the the spiraling of local disputes into national controversies, mm -hmm. which obviously, I mean, happens much faster in the internet era, but certainly happened back then. And there's this case of uh, the 1974 textbook dispute in Kanawha County, West Virginia. There's this activist, this Christian activist got very angry about certain books on the school curriculum, some for reasons of sex, uh, some for reasons of race, like the autobiography of Malcolm X. And she thought this was not stuff that, that the kids should be taught. Obviously, won't somebody think of the children 
from The Simpsons is like a key line in the culture wars. <laughs> it led to um, a school boycott and the most extraordinary violence. An elementary school was dynamited. I'm not sure if anyone was in it, but anyway, schools dynamited, school buses were attacked with shotguns, and rocks were thrown at the homes of children who broke the boycott by going to school. Yeah. Definitely not thinking of the children there. And that seemed at the time to be, you know, something very weird and shocking, you mm. know, that you could you could you could escalate. The escalation, of course, is 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 one of the big features of the culture war. So when I go back to the 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 Hunter book. And he observes and like another shift. You were talking about shifting alliances. Now, his main argument, because he's a specialist in religion, is he observes that previously there were big differences between the priorities and voting patterns of different religious groups, evangelicals, Catholics, Jews. But the new divide was between conservatives and liberals within those religions. So an orthodox Jew would have more in common politically with a strict Catholic than with a liberal Jew. Mm. So what he talks about is the impulse toward orthodoxy and the impulse toward progressivism as fundamentally opposing visions of the meaning of America. It's a fight to control the symbols, narratives and institutions of America. This is my words now, not his. And therefore define its identity. And he points out the rhetoric is absolutist and hyperbolic. Mm -hmm. So your opponents are the absolute worst. I mean, they are morally evil and must be stopped at all costs. Mm. Now, his book is not bestseller material. I mean, the way it's written, it is very sort of calm. It's in no sense a polemic. In fact, you can't really tell where his own sympathies lie. But it does popularize the phrase very successfully. If you look on Google Ngrams, it's basically like a cliff edge from 1991 to 1999. Hmm. It just shoots up, levels out a bit, then shoots up again in, in, in the 2000s. It's actually dipped a bit since then in the US, which surprised me. But it has been a constant rise in the UK. Oh, wow. And we'll talk about that huh. later. Mm. Um, that the UK sort of came late to it, but got quite obsessed with really it. Really committed. Yeah. Now, the immediate effect of this, of this book is in 1992, Pat Buchanan, ultra-conservative Republican, ran for president, uses it in his speech, the Republican National Convention, says there is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a cultural war, as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be, as was the Cold War itself, which does suggest that with the Cold War over, some people, fighty people, really mm. needed a replacement. Mm -hmm. It's like Cold War methadone. And he wraps up with a battle cry. We must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. <laughs> take back control, perhaps. <laughs> Um, and we'll come back to this key idea that all of these things have been stolen by the left, even though at that point, Republicans have been running the country for almost 12 years. Mm. Uh, this was an explosive speech. The columnist Molly Ivins wrote that it probably sounded better in the original German. And she did not, <laughs> she did not mean Bismarck. <laughs> now, I, I don't want to go over this period too much because we, we, we talked about it in the woke episode as the kind of the heyday of the political correctness debate. Mm. All these battles in the early 90s over multiculturalism, university curriculums, art, music, Hollywood. This is when I think pop culture was really seen as like a wing of the Democratic Party. And where I think this is really important is it's fair to say most people working in the arts then as now were indeed liberal. There is a liberal bias. I mean, bias is probably the wrong, wrong word, but an, a sort of an imbalance with liberals in academia as well. And so what these two areas, pop culture and academia, 
Those are specific areas in which conservatives are always in the underdogs, even if they control the White House and both houses of Congress and have mm. a majority on the Supreme Court. And that feeling of grievance is absolutely essential. But you know what I find fascinating about that whole debate is you, you look back on it now and I sort of think the conservatives were right. Because at that period, the conservative argument, this, this has changed now. And I think sort of progressives have now gone to the conservative position. The conservative argument was the culture matters, right? Like, so you have, I mean, you have uh, art critic James Cooper, who's a conservative. He said, he said that the leaders should stop going on about foreign affairs the whole time, quote, while failing to realize the war, the war is also raging on the battlefield of the arts within our own borders. This whole idea was the films in the cinema matter. The art in the, you know, in the gallery matters. The music matters. And the liberal response, and I remember this from being a kid, was it doesn't doesn't really make any difference. You know what I mean? There was always this thing of like, oh, this guy watched Rambo and then he went and shot up a shopping mall or something like that. And the, the liberal, this or Evil Dead 2 came out and mm. or the James Bolger thing, you know, and like kids are going to attack each other because they've seen Child's Play. And the liberal thing was always like, no, that's not how it works. You know, people get that there's a distinction between these things. Right. And, blah, blah. and now we all agree culture matters. <laughs> like as well, much but it was liberals who were worried that when Joker came out, that's that there true. were going to be shootings in cinemas, weren't there? Yeah, and obviously true. the culture yeah. has got more sort of violent and I think obviously there is more of a sense of how it affects people. But it's interesting that there was, yes, there was something a little bit disingenuous, I suppose, yeah. in, in that liberals would argue that, of course, diversity and representation matters and not having hate speech matters. But, you know, like Piss Christ, that, famous mm. sort of art piece. Do you, which, want to do you want to describe it? It's just art. Well, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a crucifix <laughs> immersed in urine. It actually looks beautiful. If you don't know that it, it's urine by the artist Andre Serrano, and it's this beautiful gold, sort of amber golden sort mm -hmm. of glow. And it's not simply, you know, sacrilegious. But of course, many people would, when they heard it described, would consider <laughs> that sacrilegious. No, it was interesting, wasn't it? He was, he was kind of obsessed with sort of Catholicism's yeah. relationship with like bodily fluids, you know, drinking the blood of Christ and, right. eating, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a pretty weird thing. But there were about. huge battles over that. And they weren't, and this is where, of course, we're trying to keep distinct from, from political correctness because there were also huge battles about, say, uh, American Psycho, mm -hmm. where yeah. in fact yeah, yeah. most yeah. of the criticism was from the, was most criticism from the left. But what concerns us here, I think, was the criticism, you know, the, the sort of the backlash politics on the right and how big these things became. Like, it shouldn't really matter whether this artist created this work or not, or whether it's exhibited or not. But it became, in the early 90s, as the idea of the culture war took off, like, hugely important. And I think that this stuff has become more important. So there was a backlash to Hunter's book with books like Alan Wolfe's One Nation After All and Maurice Fiorina's Culture War, The Myth of a Polarized America. And they found then that most voters liked the idea of one nation and the culture war was being fought by intellectuals rather than average citizens. And as we sort of move into the internet era and everything that's gone wrong in politics, I want, I'm, I want to talk about whether that still holds true. But, you know, Hunter says that in his own book. He says, actually, this is really about arguments between elites and that your average Joe doesn't care about, you know, piss christ or american psycho or or any of this that seems a little bit easy 
So take, I mean, because what, what strikes me about the all of these instances, these culture battles, basically, they're individual culture battles, whether it's that or whether it's like Last Temptation of Christ, right? The Martin Scorsese film, yeah, hugely yeah. controversial, you know, Christ basically tempted by the, the sins of the flesh and all that kind of stuff, was that they were extraordinary recruiting sergeants. Everyone won. Right. Like the person who really, like, you know, th that film, which is pretty tepid and average, you know, did incredibly well because of the controversy around it. A huge commercial success. The Christian groups just start recruiting like crazy. I mean, hundreds of thousands yeah, yeah. of people joining. The film studio was receiving 5,000 letters a week. It's universal. When they were making um, The Last Temptation of Christ, it was up to a million, you know, letters they were receiving in the year before it comes out. That doesn't seem to me like it's just. Just letters in the Washington Post. Ah. You know what I mean? I, I, no, I no, 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 no. Like I don't think there is a contradiction there. I don't think there is a contradiction. I think it's about what people care about and what you can make people care about. And it's, it's elites and activists who tell people that these things are really important. Because in the great scheme of things, your average citizen doesn't really give a shit about a Martin Scorsese movie. But if you tell them that this is an important battle in a broader war for the soul of America against secularism. I mean, this is not, this is, this is based on the polls. You know, this is based on, on, on polls and focus groups and all that. And it found that most voters did not like the idea of a culture war, did not embrace division. At this point, we're talking in the 90s mm. and, and even early 2000s. They definitely develop an industry. And this whole story, you know, from, from the German example right up to today, is about industries developing, you know, whether it's in political parties, whether it's in sort of mass, mass groups. But I'm a little wary of the whipped up by elite thing, although it's surely part of it, in that it presumes that people wouldn't have got there on their own or that they're sort of being brainwashed. But you see, I think that these cultural divisions are real. You know, I think that there's... there's there's a version of conservatism, small c, that exists at almost any time, you know, that is essentially about we want to keep society as it is right now with the current mm. sense of authority and the sense of truth and the sense of nation or religion or whatever else. And there's challenges to that that come either from liberalism or from various other sort of forces of, of progress. Uh, and that people break demographically, specifically on higher education, whether they've been to university sure, for the last yeah. few hundred years, along those lines pretty cleanly. I mean, obviously, there's complications, but it's pretty clean. And on that basis, absolutely, you know, there's certain times a battle comes along and it just sort of whimpers out. Nobody really cares. Statues in the UK right now. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and there's other times a battle comes along. Brexit is, you know, and it just detonates. Right. And a lot of them care. And absolutely people come into whip. But it's very hard to tell the extent to which that you, I don't think you can construct it out of nowhere. Well, you can, you can't make appeal. something from nothing, but it's whipping up things that don't need to be whipped up. And mm -hmm. this is where I think mm -hmm. Hunter in this book is, is, is quite naive. Mm. He says he thinks these divisions are basically unfortunate but inevitable in a democracy. They spring from genuine moral disagreements. And what politicians of good faith really want is some kind of compromise or resolution. He writes, on all sides, the contenders are generally sincere, thoughtful and well-meaning. <laughs> Which is like, that's real. The past is another country. Like, wow. <laughs> and so wherefore, what he doesn't get into, and it, it was certainly happening by then, but I mean, to be fair to him, most of it, much of this happened after the book, is the manipulation and exaggeration of these disagreements by the Republican Party. 
So take abortion, like a strict Christian who believes that life begins at conception is justified in thinking that abortion should be a crime. Mm. I don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that is a sincere, there is a, a sincere moral logic to their case. But being anti-choice becomes an essential membership requirement of the conservative movement. And similarly with guns, that wasn't a top issue for Republicans. You did not have this Second Amendment absolutism. That was not what the NRA was for, you know, say under Nixon. So it wasn't a top issue for Republicans, but then it becomes one. So there's this process of polarization that weeds out the liberal Republicans and the segregationist Democrat. So it gets to the point where if you are a good Republican, you simply have to be pro-gun, anti-abortion and so on. And so, so Hunter thought that division was like a bug in American democracy. How unfortunate. But it becomes a feature, and I would argue, mainly because of the Republicans, because anger drives people to vote. Now, we know that. We know that, and he studies social media, anger gets people engaged. Mm. That's the whole problem with the algorithms, is that, is that anger is galvanizing. And so, therefore, it's, it's an electoral strategy. So I think the best book on how culture wars work now, I've read, is What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America by Thomas Frank from 2004. Have you read that one? No, no. It's very good. So he's a left-wing writer, grew up in Kansas, and he uses his home state to ask the question, why working-class Americans vote against their economic interests, which during the Bush years, a lot of people were very confused by this. And his answer is cultural issues. He was writing after the 2000 election, uh, which is where the idea of two Americas comes from, red and blue states. Mm. That wasn't really a thing before then. Mm. And the winner, of course, was George W. Bush, a man of great wealth and privilege who somehow sold himself as the authentic American dude. Because the Republicans still want a small state and low taxes for the rich. They don't have much to offer working class voters economically. But they notice what happened to the Democratic coalition after the Voting Rights Act in 1965. The many blue collar Democrats switched the Republicans because of racism, social conservatism and resentment of coastal elites. And they went for Nixon. Even more of them went for Reagan. People talked about Reagan Democrats. And so what the Republicans managed to do is unhook class conflict from economics and create a more powerful divide based on culture, which is genius, because then you can do economically, you can continue to serve the rich, but also seeming like you are the representatives of the good, honest, blue collar American. And this is what I mean about the, the very deliberate weaponization of culture war for electoral gain. This is what I think the pipeline is. You start with the activist groups in the 70s. It mm -hmm. wasn't, didn't start with the Republican Party. A lot of them were quite, because there were still quite a few kind of liberal Republicans, were quite startled by this. This groundswell, like the textbook controversy, like the evangelicals, yeah, yeah. Yeah, huge yeah. pressure, you know, from below, a particular slice of, of, of below. And you could see that with um, the Equal Rights Amendment, that, that show not so long ago, uh, Miss America which showed you this huge sort of anti-feminist backlash led by Phyllis Schlafly. Huh. Then it is adopted by the Republicans. And so by the 90s, it's sort of more top down. So there's an outrage pipeline that goes from the activists to the parties and then to the voters. See, I buy all of that because I think that's, that's, the, that's again, what, what you see from the German period onwards of just like the division exists, there's demand. It's a basically a question of demand and supply. Mm, you know, you see mm. some demand and yes, absolutely stoked by sort of activist yeah. guys um, and people who really do, you know, have a role in it, whether it's Catholics and Protestants or anything else. 
And then you see political parties thinking, well, I can make this work for me. This mobilizes voters, right? So, so off we go. I actually think that process is really convincing that it would work that way. The only bit that I question is this part where they sort of sit in the background going, we know that our economics don't work. So let's, let's pivot to culture. Because it just seems to me like it's, it's just a question of supply and demand. They see that it works for voters. They go with it. I think that they do believe in the economics that they put forward. And I think most of their voters also believe in those right. economics, even though they are the losers from the system, from the perspective of someone on the left or anyone else. Really. Now, what I want to ask you about is this difference between culture battles and culture wars. And, and this idea, basically, that I, I mentioned of bundling together different issues. To me, each time that there's a battle on any issue, abortion, statues, whatever the hell, Rambo, there's a wedge that falls and it divides people, right? So the first, there's two questions to me. The first one is, how many people care and are motivated by it? And so again, Brexit motivates a shitload of people very, yeah, yeah. very strongly. Statues, hardly any at all. The second issue, and this is the more important one, is how many of those wedges fall on the same fault line? Yeah. Because if they're falling all over the place, you're sort of all right, right? Yeah. And that's most societies most of the right. time. The distinction for the US, and this seems so pertinent to us now, because, you know, you and I were doing podcasts during Brexit where we were like, well, that's it, game over, right? Yeah, we're yeah. in culture war yeah, forever yeah. now. There's no way we go back to normal. Yeah. And then like an elastic band, you know, so quickly afterwards, things did actually go back to normal to a very considerable extent. So in the US, something is very different. It's like, the, it's like they fall in the Grand Canyon. You know what I mean? It's like each wedge issue falls down and it's the same scar. It's falling on the same fault line over and over again. And I think that that's to do, one, with the role of religion in US history and politicized religion, which just isn't really an issue in the UK. And secondly, to do with race in the US, which is a very different debate there to the one that it is here, because it doesn't have the same degree of sort of personal history and trauma to it. You know what I mean? Like you can, of course, make the case loads of people in the UK and their ancestors would have profited from slavery, and, but it wasn't happening actually in your society. You know, if, if you're an elderly person in the US right now, you will quite likely be in a place where you remember as a child, places where you were not allowed to marry if you were of different races. That is still a thing that is there, right? Like those two fault lines, religion and race, so such a deep scar that so many of the wedges just plug into that. And it seems to me that at that point, each of those wedges is a cultural battle. And at the point that they all fit in the same scar, or at the point that one of them is so explosive, it becomes a cultural war. And you would think, okay, almost logically go, well, that would have been happening since, since wherever, you know, since time immemorial, you know, what you're talking about, this kind of uh, the enlightenment battle mm. between the sort of secular religion. But, you know, one of the reasons why Hunter wrote his book was that he didn't understand why, you know, your opinion on the arts would line up with your opinion on abortion, <laughs> while your opinion on gay rights would line up by your opinion on nuclear power. I mean, nuclear power, but back then, obviously, the politics were very different. Um, to what to what they are now. And he found this generally confusing. So another way in which he was wrong, I think, in a very interesting way, was he assumed that the goal of a culture war, like any war, is to win. Mm. Right? That would make sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, but if anger helps you win elections, then you don't want to win. Yes, you want exactly. to keep boiling forever because you need that sense of, of grievance and oppression 
So you see that with the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. You know, it's a win for conservatives, but actually it's fired up liberals. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to help the Democrats in, in, in the midterms. In the same way, by the way, that, the, you know, the, the evangelical opinion on um, abortions was quite sort of oddly ambivalent before Roe uh, versus Wade. Mm -hmm. You know, it was actually, there, there was quite a lot of subtlety yeah, yeah. to it when it was, suddenly became almost militarized in the wake of that decision. And this is why I think that it, that it, that it is asymmetrical because on the left, because they talk about, oh, the, we, you know, the left started it or whatever, but the, the, the <laughs> framing, so but the framing is a different, you know, because progressive ideas, you know, whether it's a policy or a diversity in a movie or whatever, aren't framed as attacks on the right. They're presented on their own merits. Like, this is a good thing. But the right is, is very sort of reactive and defensive and everything is an insult and must be fought, about, fought against. You know, all progress is kind of a provocation to, to upset them. And so when they do win on a big issue, they, they don't, they don't want to make too much of it. There wasn't like a victory lap for, for, for abortion. Right? Mm. They weren't like, hooray. Really? Not mm. in the way that you would expect. You think, well, you finally got what you wanted. It's mm. not really how it's presented, you know, politically by Republican politicians. And they have to find new things to be angry about, like Dr. Seuss and, and drag queens and, mm. uh, you know, The Last Jedi. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a good quote from Thomas Frank where he says, culture, that infinitely malleable malefactor upon which any evil design can be projected is the only plausible oppressor left. Not only plausible, the existence of profound, all-corrupting liberal cultural influence is an absolute ontological necessity if conservatism is to make any sense. So you could overturn abortion rights, you could overturn gay marriage, but you could never make movie studios and pop music conservative. So Frank says, the leaders of the backlash have chosen to wage cultural battles where victory is impossible, where their followers' feelings of powerlessness will be dramatized and their alienation aggravated. And that, I think, is where almost if you unpack the pop culture from issues of, uh, of, of abortion, gun rights, so on, even like Brexit in, in Britain, that is where it's just like, well, you can never, ever win. You are never going to have conservative dominance of comedy. Mm. And because well, mm. they're not that funny, and, uh, and 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 Hollywood and pop and so on, it's never going to happen. And so that I think is where there is a big mistake that people make about culture wars. They think that the idea is to win, and I don't believe that it is. I think you could almost go the other way. There's a kind of a losing battle among conservatives in the West. They face it in the US, they face it in the UK, and they face it overwhelmingly um, in most countries in Europe. Not all of them, but most of them, and it's a fundamentally a demographic issue yeah right and and when this thing starts in the 60s it starts just like that in universities you know why why would you see the rise of the left in the 60s in the u.s the rise of the left in the u.s always happens during times of economic peril you know the great depression flirting with communism that sort of thing i mean you're looking at four percent gdp rise you know annually on average during that period there shouldn't be a rise of the left the reason is because you go from around sort of three and a half million um people signing up to go into college at the beginning of the 60s to about seven and a half million people being in college by the end, by the beginning of the 70s. You just have a lot of people in university. And what we see again and again is going to university makes you more liberal and it makes you more constrained by logic in, in the extent to which you express your politics. You actually think of it like a complete system rather than just a right. series of sort of instincts. You have that I mean, in the UK, for instance, you have that group, you have um, 
uh, ethnic, uh, growth in ethnic minorities as well. And what do you see on the other side of these issues? You typically see sort of people in lower middle and upper working class sort of declining industries who have a sense of a country being taken away, you know? And that sense of loss, comes. It's, this is all mixed up with economics. You know, you can separate it out in terms of the subject right. matter, but ultimately the underlying stuff has the economics within it. That sense of loss of status to me is like the key sort of fuel in sort of conservative small C politics of that sort of sense of like, I'm losing something now. Like, this is why I want the country to go back to the 50. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that sepia tinge part. But it's the way that it hinges on, is the way that so much of the, the you know, the, the, the airtime of culture was taken up with this nonsense. Yes, no, it is. You know, <laughs> so I think there's two reasons why culture wars are worse now. And one is obviously social media where, you know, you can start a storm in a teacup and then that gets translated into the, 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 the mainstream media as mm. like, oh, oh boy, mm. you know, we are a nation at war with itself. Mm -hmm. And the other is, I think, the total intellectual collapse of conservatism. Now, after the 2019 election, the charity Engage Britain ran focus groups around the country. And here's its conclusion, which actually includes a really good definition of exactly what we've been talking about. So it's the idea that we are in the middle of a US style culture war where someone's opinion on one issue is a guaranteed predictor of how they feel about other seemingly unrelated ones doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Now, I think actually that middle, that little bit in the middle there should be in the OED definition because mm. mm. of that idea of fault lines and, and bundling. Mm. Because it doesn't stand up scrutiny. You mentioned religion. You mentioned race. I also think there is something about the fact that America is a relatively new country. And so its identity, what America means, has always been thought about. And America, what America means, it's in the title of you know, it's American graffiti, it's American psycho, it's American hmm. sniper. It's hmm. like there is no, there's no body of work where it's kind of like British. If somebody said British sniper, you'd be like, <laughs> why, why have you called it that? But like, you know, American honey, like it's constantly American, America. There's all this, you know, endless songs about America, which there aren't in the same way about Britain and England, mm -hmm. you know. And, the, and so, and so all the, a lot of these fights, particularly in the LC Supreme Court, are all about the Constitution. You know, what is America meant to mean? What did the founders intend? I also think that we lack party polarization. And another thing I think is the hugeness of the issues that we don't have guns, we don't have abortion, we don't have these massive issues. The only one that we had, which made us think maybe there's a culture war here, is Brexit. And when Brexit went away, as a, as a kind of hot galvanizing political issue, um, sadly not as a policy, we... Um, <laughs> You know, it was like what they're like scrabbling around and they were like statues. Mm. I mean, my God, it was like just embarrassing. It was like, really, that's what you've got. And so, of course, you still get these people banging on about the kind of, you know, the woke BBC and this, that and the other. But it's not driving voters. It's simply not getting through in the way that it does in America. Do you think it could? Do you think something could change? Yes, definitely. Because we've we've demonstrated our capacity for it, right? That's the thing. We've shown that we are susceptible to this in some instances. Clearly, we don't have the same level of sort yeah. of vulnerability to it. But we're it clearly can happen to us because we spent the whole of our lives talking about how that stuff would never happen to us. The Americans, they're so crazy. Look at the way they talk about abortion and guns. And then suddenly one day you're like on an issue that the year before, you know, was right at the bottom of any kind of salience right. poll of what do you care about? Yeah. We got very strongly triggered by that, you know, like really hard. But but it didn't, it's like you're saying though, it didn't bring all these other issues with them. You know, one horrifying thing is the way that climate change, which is a scientific issue, mm. 
of some existential significance <laughs> is a culture war issue. And so that your opinion on gun rights will also line up with uh, your opinion on whether you believe climate change is real. Now, that is great. That's where that whole kind of bundling thing is simply demented. And you don't have that. You look at conservatives and they're basically there's very few climate deniers. I, so I think that they are the classic example. America is a classic example of it. However, look across Europe, right? Right. It's not completely, you know, easy. I mean, Hungary is the obvious example. If you look at Victor Orban following quite a quite a structured process, and you will find that break, yeah. time, except for the fact that he's almost sort of liquidated the sort of liberal class in that country. Look at Poland and the role that politicized religion has there. If you look at the rhetoric that yeah. comes from the right, it's very, very similar to the kind of evangelical rhetoric you get there. Look at what's going on in Italy right now. I mean, if you see from the right in Italy, you basically would now have control of the country. The rhetoric around the role of man and woman. This is always, this is, runs through the whole sort of thing, yeah, yeah. Um, which is always about, you know, the man's role is to be strong, to be tough, to be quite uncaring. The woman's role is sort of basically to look after him and just stay in the house. And yeah. you see all of that rhetoric, you know, from the right in Italy. So we see these instances around and, Europe. And, and, and they do... When I'm talking about the, the manipulation and the exaggeration was, I think, Orban went in very hard a few years ago, I think the last election, but one extremely hard on gay, on the, on the, on the kind of the gay peril, mm -hmm. made a huge issue out of it. And then as a result, loads of people started caring about it who before... You know, mm -hmm. it's not like a particularly, I think, you know, inherently homo more homophobic country than its neighbours. But that became the thing. And we're seeing it with Putin now. You know, it's very weird the way that Putin is, obviously, who wants a kind of like sort of quasi-religious, you know, authoritarian state. But of course, his culture war is, is sort of is 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 terrifying. And... <laughs> <laughs> completely lopsided because once you're an authoritarian, it's not really a culture where you're basically just like you're pummeling people without power. You know, in Russia, it's not true that the media and uh, the movie industry and academia are very, very liberal. You know, so obviously you can't. So it's kind of weird seeing this culture war rhetoric used by somebody who has like a, you know, this country in a, an iron fist, basically. I think also once someone is, once it's a non-democratic society, yeah. you kind of have to just put it in a different category. Yes. And not least even just, not even just morally, but just functionally, because the kind of incentives, those supply demand incentives on, on mobilization just kind of don't work in the same way. Right. You, no. you, you know what seems to me like a really good test for whether you're in culture war or not is the incentives on politicians. You know, so we live typically in sort of democratic societies thinking that the politician is looking for consensus. They're yeah, looking yeah, yeah. for middle ground, yeah. bringing people together. Once either those wedges, one of the wedges is severe enough or you get lots of them in the same fault line and that mobilization happens, you start to see a different set of incentives on politicians, right? So you've seen it in the US for quite some time, uh, predominantly on the right, but sometimes a little bit on the left, maybe not with presidents, presidential candidates, but mm. lower than that, you know? And suddenly you saw it in the UK, right? Like no matter how much you disliked Cameron, you know, David Cameron, you weren't thinking like this is a guy that's stoking division, right? I mean, he had like a poisonous, self-destructive economic policy, but that was sure. it. Then you get May and Johnson where you think they're actively trying to stoke this thing and even to a lesser extent sort of tr Liz Truss. And that seems to me, it's not that our politicians are any better than theirs. It's that 
the point that the mobilization becomes very fierce on these proper wedge issues that they're defining the way that debate takes place, the incentives on politicians change as basic, core, mathematical, electoral sort of incentives. And that seems to me to be a real litmus test of where you are with these things. But it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the Tories will have people that really lean into this stuff. And Labour, a lot of the time, is, is doing quite the opposite. Yes. It's trying to avoid them. Yes. You know, and that's where some people think Labour doesn't stand up enough for certain groups because Labour is just like, we don't want to do this. But and that... so it's very asymmetrical. And it's even asymmetrical in even, you know, you have far more Democrats worrying about certain cultural issues and whether or not we should fight for them. We sorry, they should fight for them or downplay them. They're very, very sensitive about like, well, if we go in, you know, too hard on, you know, Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ rights, then we might lose some voters. Republicans never seem to think, oh, no, if we come off as too bigoted, um, that might be a problem. And that, I think, is where it's just it's so that maybe there was a point where you could say there was more symmetry. But it seems the incentives are largely on one side. I think that that comes down to the current electoral calculus, which is shifting. Like that is changing. You see the growth in ethnic minority voters. You see the growth of graduate voters in this country, in the US. And. Um, that will change the dynamic quite significantly. But for the time being, most of those parties on the left are trying to hold together a, um, a fractured coalition on some of these lines. Yeah, they need yeah. some social conservatives and sort of working class votes yeah. together with sort of more liberal middle class votes. And, and while that pertains, they kind of can't afford to just go completely in on, on one side of this thing. to bring up one reason for doing this episode was a tweet that really annoyed me oh. which i think is I didn't know. so that's why i've just sat here for the last yeah. hour and a half and spent the last three weeks of my life reading about i think this. that is where a lot of the best work is created <laughs> what when, when i spent three by weeks being no, just by being annoyed by somebody <laughs> uh, so this tweet said uh, we should have smarter i'm paraphrasing here smarter and more honest culture wars now i well, i know who you wrote i tweet. think this is an oxymoron because as soon as you have, like, what Joe Saveson Hunter wanted, lively good faith discourse in which voices from the middle are heard as loudly as the extremes, because mm. that's one thing about the culture wars that actually most people are in the middle, but they just, nobody's listening to them. Then it's no longer a culture war. It's a debate in a democracy. And that's great. So as soon as you have like a healthy, honest culture war, well, it's not a culture war because the whole point is the fighting. That's why it says war. <laughs> and it, it's a binary proposition. So you have your allies who are wonderful and your enemies who are evil. Compromise is therefore impossible, even though that is in fact what most voters and citizens want. And even in the US, if you look at it, most voters favor compromise positions on guns and abortion. There is no political capital in making that happen. There is no possibility of passing the gun legislation that a majority of American voters want. It got me thinking about, OK, why why is that wrong? Like, what is a culture war? Because, like I said, in the, you know, the Google engrams and anybody basically who reads the British press at the moment, or listens to the radio or is on social media, is this phrase is used all the time. It'll be the culture war over you know, knitting or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, what is. What's wrong about this application? What, how has it become just uh, the phrase that we use to describe people arguing? You know, what makes it distinct from just normal arguments? So I would like to maybe wrap up 
with a working definition of culture war. Do you have one? Well, it's not very, it's not so elegant, but maybe some sort of key, some key features. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. So one is that it sees basically society as combat and there's no compromise and it's sort of apocalyptic rhetoric. It's just mm. like, you must, yeah, yeah. you must defeat uh, your opponent. Two, as we've said, is, is that it, it bundles what ostensibly should be quite unrelated individual battles and issues into a war that then breaks along, in, in America anyway, breaks along party lines. And then thirdly, the deliberate stoking of these grievances for uh, electoral gain. The creation of the impression of division and the impression that society has these sort of like, has broken down into two armed camps that can never be brought together. Mm. Otherwise it is just, like I said at the beginning, it just seems to be a phrase that people use to describe a political disagreement that isn't about economics. And that seems to me to retrospectively apply a phrase that, you know, in its English version is really a product of the last, you know, three, three four decades. No, how many decades now? Yeah, three, four decades. And then, turn, and then make that kind of like, Almost as if, oh, well, it's, it's just this is what's been happening since time immemorial. And if that is the case, then why are, we so free, why are we so freaked out about it? Like culture war can't be a bad thing if all it means is... Just chatting about culture. Just the, argu <laughs> the, the same old arguments that have been happening in politics for decades. You know what I mean? You would, you would have had, disagree you know, there's, there's, there's disagreements. There's, there's a democracy. So I think you have to have those criteria for it to mean anything and for it to mean something negative. I tried to do a summary definition. Oh, great. And I thought by the end of it, this is really surprisingly hard and I might go a bit easier on the OED for future episodes. So I was it's like, incredibly it's really hard. They, they work so hard on, on getting the, you know, one sentence. <laughs> so I put, the point at which wedge-issue disputes between conservatives and progressives reach such a magnitude that incentives for division replace consensus seeking. Oh. <laughs> oh, I've never heard you make that sound before. No, I like that. Mm. I like that. But I suppose I think that's entirely true. But I suppose there are kind of those other bits that I wanted, you know, that, that I sort of. Yeah, yeah. No, you want always like, test. you must sort of want to pad out, the, you know, like a list of features as in, in a later episode, we'll be talking about fascism. And, you know, there are quite a few lists circulating online that people have, have tried to produce to go, OK, this is what defines fascism. Mm. And obviously, that's not how the dictionary works, kind of, you know, a sort of, you know, a, a list of boxes to be ticked. But I think that it's the only, there have to be a few criteria to, to sort of narrow down this meaning and to really understand, to also understand how it functions. You know, concepts like it's not, it's about the perpetual rolling grievance. It's not about victory. I think it's really important to understand when you're thinking about how a culture war operates politically, you know, and of course, a lot of time these battles can never, you know, these, these battles can never be won. It's like, you know, even if you manage to sort of reverse the rights of a minority group, they're not going to go, oh, well, we tried. No, but I do think it's important to remember that they heat up right now because the conservative side of it on any assessment that you look at is losing that demographic battle. You know, on, on the basics of it over the course of our lifetime, they're on the losing end of it. And when you look at 
the changes in society over the last decades, over this period that we're talking about, it has become more accepting, more inclusive, more liberal, more plural. Like that is a process that will carry on. And the funny thing is, it will be the story of our lifetimes, I think, politically. Mm. And as it does, I think that the resentment and the vitriol about that change will actually increase rather than decrease, which is partly why you end up in the situation that we're in. There's one thing I want to say to, I suppose, in terms of, you know, how, how doing this research has made, has made me think is that these cultures, they, they rely on, they rely on anger and they rely on the manufacturing of anger. And I'm very aware on, on social media sometimes, you know, where you feel like a physical surge mm. of rage over something and a sense and a genuine sense that your opponents and sometimes your opponents are just simply awful there are some people in the in the public eye where you're just like they just seem like terrible people <laughs> it's very hard to see the, the the hurt little child in like alex jones or something <laughs> so yeah okay sometimes you really are you know you're up against terrible people who really want to cause immense harm but that feeling can be can be very addictive the, the people that you disagree with are always appalling and there can never be any compromise. And there are issues that I care very deeply about where, there has to, where the only way forward is, is compromise. You simply cannot have, you know, one side winning. Hmm. It's just not the way that a functioning society mm -hmm. is going to operate. And so it, it, it this does... This is about Star Wars, right? It does, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Last Jedi. Um, but it really does, it, you know, and that, that's the bit that concerns me. And that's where you think because the books that I was reading were pre-social media, the, the key mm, ones I was reading. Mm. And they're talking about like stoking anger. And then you have something which is almost like designed in a laboratory to press all those <laughs> buttons <laughs> and to make you feel like you're in a war. And all the language of kind of allies and enemies. And that I think is something that we should be really conscious of and be aware that sometimes there are people that you will disagree with who are in good faith. And it is a genuine, sincere disagreement of the kind that we have had for, you know, since time immemorial. And that not everything is like a shitty, cynical rage machine. Hmm. Okay, let's wrap it up. That was, uh, you were bordering on healthy life advice there. And I just think we have to stop that before it can continue. If people don't get angry at the phone, where am I going to get my followers on Twitter? It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I, I need to say thank you just very briefly to people who helped inform the stuff that um, I was reading on this stuff. I and mean, one of them is Katja Hoyer from King's College London, Cass Muddy from the University of Georgia, and especially Rob Ford from the University of Manchester, who really helped inform my thoughts on this stuff. Thank you for having us back. We're really glad to be back for this uh, new season. Um, send us your emails with anything you think we got right or wrong or just general points that you want to do at originstory at podmasters.co.uk. Next week, we're going to be talking about satire. And if you would like to hear that episode a week early, you can support us on Patreon. We will see you next time. Season two of Origin Story was written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.